0: I just want to tell everybody, you know, your voice is valid. You need to find out what you know that can make the world a better place, that can add to the good, that can make the world more beautiful, sonically wonderful. It all begins by understanding
1: the mind. I want to be happy now. I don't care about the future. I want to be happy right now. You are not alone. You are never, ever, ever alone in this
0: helped my voice grow and given me freedom to be creative on my own.
1: I'm Christina Barcy. Welcome to Be Bold, Begin, a podcast dedicated to you, the creative, the healer, and the innovator. The topics and conversations we have here are designed to help you discover what might be getting in your way and offer you tools, techniques, and guidance to move through them. I live in the imposter's body more than I live in my own body. I don't have to feel like I don't deserve this. This is where creativity and healing intersect. If you decide to be bold and begin, you have the opportunity to feel humbled and empowered. I totally believe that. I'm a certified Kaizen Muse creativity coach, a certified Reiki energy healer, and an entrepreneur, artist, and presenter. I will share with you my experiences, my proven tools and techniques that helped me and my clients and loved ones shift and expand in the areas they most desired. This is a gentle and open space where you will hear how others are being bold to encourage you to begin your own journey or expand the one you're on. This is Begin. Hi, welcome back. This is Barcy, your host. And before we begin today... I want to share something with you. Recently, I started to notice a sort of theme in my life. I talk a lot about finding your purpose and being message-driven, and most of you know I have a podcast production company that helps others find their message and bring it to life through podcasting, but there is a theme here, one that runs through all of my projects, and it's about being heard. It's about using our voice. It's about finding ourselves and our truths. I wanted to be a singer before anything else when I was little, then a writer, then an actor. My first language was Hungarian, but then at about three years old that was no longer taught to me, though my parents still spoke it to each other, and all of my relatives did not speak English, so I already started to feel this deep need to be heard at a young age. And then, of course, as I got older, as a woman, that feeling stuck around. The documentary I produced is called Is Anyone Listening? And I now podcast for a living, if that tells you anything. So, (laughs) finding my voice and helping others do that has been at the core of my work. Whether I understood it at the time or not, it just keeps coming up. And that is the reason I am so excited to bring on my guest today, Judy Rodman, who is an award-winning vocal coach, recording artist, stage and television performer, public speaker, author, multi-genre hit songwriter, studio producer, and vocal consultant. Her deep approach to helping those she works with lean into their authenticity in order to bring their true voice forth is really where the magic happens, and she has a trademarked vocal training method called Power, Path, and Performance that she teaches to singers and speakers nationally and internationally. She also has a podcast called All Things Vocal, and she believes your vocation should be where your passion meets the world's needs, which I thought was very cool. Welcome, Judy.
0: Thank you so much. Boy. Yeah, we are kindred spirits in a lot of ways, it sounds like. That's amazing.
1: I thought we might Mm -hmm. be, which I wanted to share that with my listeners, but I also wanted to share that with you in a compact way (laughs) so that we don't spend a whole lot of time on it. But yeah, well, I would love to hear more about how this message or how this all resonates with you, but maybe we start from the beginning and you can tell me a little bit about your background and just about you.
0: Well, when people ask me, you know, how I started singing or whatever, using my voice, the thing is I always did. My father was an air traffic controller, and we moved around like service brats because for a while he was in the Air Force, and then we moved around because the air traffic controller needed to move around to places they were needed. So I was exposed to all kinds of music, and my father from his early childhood was a bluegrass musician from Mississippi. We did jam oh. sessions. I grew up doing music. So it's never not been a part of my life. And I grew up with a lot of paradigm shifts, discovering what voices were real and were trustworthy and were good, and what voices I enjoyed listening to, as far as music and grooves went. And I just learned tons just growing up in the environment I did. My, we had a family band that was kind of an amateur thing. I was in Miami for high school, and you know, was on the road to sort of being a research scientist. My mind kind of worked well in that direction. And I'd always done music, so that was just part of my life. Well, we moved to Jacksonville, and those educational opportunities were not. Available in Jacksonville, like they were in Miami. So I ended up just going into music. And in fact, when I was 17 years old, I did my first national jingle and realized that this thing I'd been doing all my life, I could make money in. So I became a jingle singer. And I really sold all kinds of products and all kinds of TV and radio shows and also worked R&B records in Memphis. And long story short, I got sick. My voice was taken from me because when my son was born, I had some complications from Crohn's disease and was in the hospital three months, intensive care seven weeks, and it took two years to get well. So everything stopped. Oh my. And I lost my voice for the first, but not only, time. Through the years, I've lost my voice as a songwriter. I've lost my voice as an artist when those careers met dead ends. And I've had to get back to the place where I knew who I was and that I had a valid voice without any of the accoutrements of a vocal career. And then when my vocal career Mm. came back in droves and I'm doing everything I used to do mostly mentoring others though, all of that magnified my voice and made my voice wiser. And so I can really, from experience, I'm not preaching, but from experience, tell people your voice is valid. And if you think nobody's listening, it's either you're speaking the right things at the wrong time, or maybe you should think about what you're saying and where that's useful to the world, you know. That's where your passion meets the world's needs. So I'm all about the voice privately, you know, the speaking voice and the singing voice because it moves the human being and the world. And I'm also about it in an occupation way. In fact, most of my clients are professional singers or speakers or who want to be that. And those things go together and there's an authenticity when you put them together. So I just want to tell everybody, you know, your voice is valid. You need to find out what you know that can make the world a better place, that can add to the good, that can make the world more beautiful, sonically wonderful. So I hope that makes sense. My rabbit trails are many that have woven my career together. All I can
1: tell you is everything's come full circle now. Wow. It definitely makes sense. It definitely opens up the door to a whole lot of questions. But the first thing I thought of on the last thing that you said, I like how you phrased find out what you know, because it suggests that we have what we need. Mm -hmm. And it's about discovering that and figuring out what that core really is and bringing that into light and then like how to connect it to the world, which is the timing piece maybe or the alignment piece that you talk about with figuring out, you know, how the world can collaborate with you, I'll say. They loved that. There's a story (laughs) that you might be interested in that kind
0: of juxtaposed to what we're talking about here, and it's Van Gogh. And if you think about Van Gogh, he never knew how valuable, how pricelessly valuable the work he was doing was. But he stayed true to his calling, and he had some mental illness that cost his life. But... He stayed true to his calling, and his work is priceless. And what I tell everyone now, and Eva Cassidy is a singer that kind of happened with. She was just doing demos, she thought, and then she passed away early in her career and her life as a a young woman of cancer. And then her songs made it to all kinds of movies. And she's just unbelievable how far those demos have gone. So what I want to tell people and try to get through to people, voices that I care about that make the world a better place, you know? If you are, really feel called, then the audience might not be there right now, but if you know in your deepest heart that what you're doing is good and the way you're doing it, it's well done, then just assume that it's priceless, whether it's in our lifetime or another lifetime. And what that does is it changes your reality because what do you do when you think you're doing something valid and something worthy? You do more of it and you're happy about it and you trust the process. And there's a piece that's way deeper than a Grammy
1: Award. Yes, that's the key to happiness in a lot of ways is really the trust piece. right? You right. Know, trusting yourself, trusting that truth, but discovering it first, like the awareness has to happen. And then, you know, trusting that what we're doing, if it's true, if it's authentic, that it is worthy, it is valid. Because we are already, I, I do want to say this, we are already valid right. just by being.
0: Breathing. Mm-hmm. So
1: breathing, existing. We wouldn't tell our pets that they're not valid, you know. Right. <laughs> like they're not creating, you know, masterpiece art per se. <laughs> right. Maybe some of yours are, but my cat is not. <laughs> and I think he's very valid and worthy. <laughs> Why are we different? Why would we think that we're different than that? So it's kind of an interesting thing when you flip the perspective on how we acknowledge the rest of the world, not to go too deep too fast, but it's true. We regard all these beautiful things around us, and they are serving their purpose by simply existing. And we get to interact with that yes, in whatever way that comes natural. And I think people are the same and the more we trust that and trust ourselves, the more we can have those natural interactions. Right.
0: Yeah. And one of the problems in the world is it's a world of a lot of dysfunction and dysfunctional families. And we get the messages that we're not valid and our voices are not valid. And so I think when it comes to like, I've lived a long life already and I'm planning on living a lot longer, but you know, I've learned some things <laughs> and when you can't trust your own journey If you get with a mentor, or even if you don't know them personally, if you've listened to their podcast, like people may be listening to yours, you know, on this show, the thing is that you can trust other people who you find authentic. You can trust what they're saying. And if we say, you know, I hit the bottom, I stood up and I decided it was do or die. So I decided to do, and actually it worked. And you can too. You never want to trust a person without a limp, they say, you know? So if you live any life much at all, even even at teenagers these days, you're gonna have some kind of limp. Well you've learned some things. So when people are feeling not valid, they tend to act out of fear. And so voices matter. Voices matter. What we say, what we intimate to someone, how valuable we act like they are even, can absolutely change a whole trajectory, it can keep people from becoming, you know, fundamentalist and kind of messed up in the head with some brainwashing. You can protect them from that because they, you somehow communicate to them that they're valid. So... Everybody's got their own messages, and I and, and I know you are too, Marcy, uh all about messages and how to deliver them. First of all, what messages to deliver and how to discern what messages not to deliver. And then when you do deliver it, how do you do that and what makes it successful? That's a very interesting journey. That's an interesting question.
1: (laughs) I want to get into that part that you just said, but it also brought up something you said earlier in the beginning of your story when he asked you about your background. You said you figured out which voices to trust and which not to trust. Mm -hmm. Do you mind sharing a little more about what that means to you?
0: Well, you know, I've made religious changes and paradigm shifts in that. I've made cultural inclusiveness changes and paradigm shifts about that. And the older I get, the more I realize that there's truth where goodness is. And sometimes it gets covered up with some extra stuff that doesn't belong there. And so to trust the way of love, and that makes sense to me. And also to realize, and I tell you, the older I get, the more I realize what I don't know, and that that's actually okay. When we're younger, we tend to think we've got to know it all because otherwise... Somebody will kill us. (laughs) I mean, it's just that visceral. But then you sort of, you have to get kind of comfortable with the mysterious. And what is more Mm. mysterious than the voice and its impact and music
1: and speeches, which is a musical way of using the voice too. So... Yes, there are notes in all of Mm -hmm. that. That's so interesting. And right when you were saying, you know, you feel like someone will kill you if (laughs) you don't know everything. And right before you said that, I was like, you feel unprotected was a thought I had. And that thought hadn't formulized in my mind before hearkening back on the needing to know part. And there's people in my life who still feel, you know, they're definitely past teenagehood, but still feel like they need to know it all. And it really does come back to what you said earlier, too, about the fear yeah, it does and you can get yeah. stuck in the fear mm-hmm.
0: there's no structure to what's going on now it's like a wild wild west everywhere and yeah. there needs to be some things that you can hold on to that are true authentic people who are transparent even if they disagree with you you know you accept that you can have a discussion and that's fine but somebody told me a wise woman one time told me when you have to make a decision make it out of love not fear and i found that to be incredibly wise and fear disguises itself as anger sometimes and as kind of a concrete mind against fresh information. I had a student one time that was absolutely sure because of another teacher's online teaching that the larynx was not supposed to move. It was supposed to stay completely still. And I tried I tried everything I could to persuade him, no, the larynx needs to be allowed to move. The voice box needs to move in the neck. And if you don't let it, you, and he was having all kinds of vocal trouble, but he still... You know, he just had decided concretely that 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 was a fact and didn't let evidence and you know his own experience tell him that there might be something wrong with that so Mm. again the older i get the wider my thinking gets and there are still things that are right and there's some things that are wrong but it really comes back to how you treat your fellow person your fellow human your fellow cat and dog and freshwater fish and dolphins and whales and everything it comes down to love and uh, messages you can decide is this message about love If it's a warning, it can be about love. If it's a lament, if it's a protest against the way things are, that can be about love because it's trying to move things in the direction of the light. So I'm not Pollyannish about it, but I'm really about messages and messaging and how people need to know what comes out of their face
1: can change the world for the
0: good or the ill. So the voice matters. I
1: really believe that too. Thank you for saying that so effectively (laughs) and holistically, it includes a lot. And if we did want to be not simplistic, but for the sake of simplicity, it can be that simple of fear versus love, Mm -hmm. meaning we can always ask ourselves that in any moment. I like the decision making part too. And I think about that when I go into a new business partnership Mm -hmm. or a new collaboration or things like I try to pause now. I didn't always do this because I didn't know how. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it can be that simple like how can i approach this in a loving way that is you know meant to benefit us all not just me or my business or my future right. and it just feels better first of all <laughs> and i think it yields better results it does
0: and that goes even to something like should i do this gig when my throat hurts Well, if you're afraid Mm. that you'll never get a gig again, then you might go do it and then lose your voice for a while. Maybe blow it out permanently. Who knows? I've blown my voice out for three weeks singing a jingle that I had no business singing. But it was a national spot, you know. And the thing is, that's fear. Do I take this record deal? Do I take this publishing deal? Do I agree to go to this party I mean, all those kinds of decisions in in the course of our doing business as career vocalists, that can come Mm -hmm. down to fear and love too. Yeah. And you love yourself. You know, you've got to take care of yourself so you can take care of other people. And if you lose your voice, your message is gone.
1: (laughs) Well said. And that's very true. That's very on the note of self-kindness too. It's we've got Mm -hmm. to love ourselves and self-love. How can we treat ourselves as lovingly as we would like to treat others? And it's true, if you can't keep showing up, the message gets diluted or it disappears. Yeah. So, speaking, you mentioned that you lost your voice for three weeks, but you also mentioned a much bigger period of time where you were put out for a couple of years. What was that like for you? I can't imagine that was easy. No. And at that point in the, those
0: places in my life, and it's happened several times, the biggest was that when I lost an octave and a half of my voice in the hospital from an endotracheal tube. And and
1: what does that mean exactly? So that those of us who don't really understand octaves, like how do you lose an octave and a half? Can you quantify well, that in a way that we would understand?
0: One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, that's an octave. And then I go one, okay. two, three, four, You know, and on up there. Uh And I've got, had about three and a half octaves of notes that I could pick from. And that comes in very importantly when you have to do parts, say on jingles or background vocals Mm -hmm. on records and things like that. Because, I mean, I did something for Dan Arbuck, who was with Dan Arbuck anyway. He asked me and the girl I was singing with just a couple of years ago to sing a high D above high C. Well, that's like only dogs hear that, you know? (laughs) And I did it. Uh I couldn't believe it, you know, and I've got more range than I've ever had now. And so that'll tell you, you know, I got my voice back and then some because of vocal coaching. I had had one year of vocal coaching in college because my major was actually piano, Hmm. but I memorized a little bit of the Italian art songs, uh, that book. And I used that to get my head voice going again. And that got my voice more flexible that my chords and they healed anyway, long story short. About four years after I went into the hospital, I think it was two years later, we moved to Nashville and two years or four years later, I forget which, I had a number one record and and I won the Academy of Country Music, New Female Vocalist of the Year. And I was like in People Magazine and I was on the Tonight Show and all this kind of stuff. Well, (laughs) then the label folded after three years and all of a sudden I was again at the brick wall and cried and cried and cried for three weeks. I don't even remember the days. And I had a son. You know, my son, I had to take care of. I have a family to take care of. The thing is, every brick wall that I've come up against, you really have to say to yourself, okay, am I going to stop and die, or am I just going to go on somehow? I just, for some reason, the strength in me that was put in there by my mother and my father or something, and with the help of God, you know, I mean, I, I looked for the window of opportunity. And I didn't know how much I had learned about songwriting and about... Then I had a song, One Way Ticket, because I can, cut by Leon Rhymes, And it went to number one and got me a, what they call a BMI Millionaire Award. And it was a huge hit. And then, you know, some years later, my songs weren't getting cut anymore. So I got dropped from the songwriting thing. Again, the brick wall. And then a friend of mine who was on tour with Leonard Skinner named Carol Chase was having trouble. And she had worked with me in the studio, so she knew what I could do. She knew stuff that I didn't know I could do, meaning diagnose a vocal thing and tell somebody how to do it differently. I always did that because I was leading groups and stuff. But, you know, you don't know how much you're learning. And I was able to tell her how to hit that note easy, the high note she was having trouble with. And then I thought, well, hmm, I wonder if I could do some vocal coaching. And that was some 20 odd years ago. And I found that I was really good at diagnosing issues because of the damage I had had. So see, the Uh, other thing about it is you can trust your journey and you're going to use all of it. You're going to use all of it that you think is just superfluous knowledge you'll never need. You know that math that you learned in school? (laughs) You you know, there's sometimes not a
1: calculator available. But every single thing that you learn, you're going to use in your life. That's confident building, the experience, because I feel like a lot of us, especially as artists, we're constantly having to be in a process, but life is a process. So how do we fall in love with that? And It's the journey, not the destination. It really is. Yeah. And we say that and people hear that, but what does it mean? It means trusting yourselves, trusting the journey, you know, finding- Here's what it means. Yeah,
0: The most important times in my life were not the ones where I was up in lights and everything was going right. There were the brick walls. They taught me who I was securely, you know, so that when accoutrements of success were not there, I was still okay. I learned, I definitely didn't know it then, but learned to trust in my own validity without anybody else knowing it but me and God, you know. It's at the holes, that, at the dormant season that you're really growing. And the thing is that everything that we do in our journeys, the things that we do, they're vehicles for what we're really here for, which is being an entity that makes the world better, where at the end of your life, you can look back and go, yeah, I've got this song called Passing By, leaving somebody a better off for our passing by during their journey, however long we stay there. That's what it's about. That's what the prosperous journey is about. Now I want everybody to be able to eat and eat well, you know, don't get me wrong. And we need to be wise so that we're not desperate. I would want to be the one that has the food for other people rather than the person that's having to beg for food. So, you know, our prosperity, if you can think of it, not self-centeredly, but realize that if you succeed with what you're doing financially, career-wise, then you've got the means to help somebody else along the way. But that's what it's about. And then when stuff does hit the fan and things are not working, you realize that's just, if not more, valuable a time in your life than when everything is good. My son has recently had to make a decision about two different companies he was working for. And he's been talking to my husband. And my husband said the wisest thing to him. He said, Peter, the process of making the decision is more important than the decision itself. Is that not cool?
1: Ooh, like, I got Chef chills Mark with on that, that one. one. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good uh, illustration of what you're talking about, of the process and the stuff we learn when we think that we want it to go right. faster. Like, let's right. get rid of this part exactly. of life because this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but It's like the reality is is that you're right. That's the juicy yeah. stuff. That's when we find out what we're made yeah. of. That's when we make discoveries. That's when we can leverage more when we get to the next chapter. Yeah, it's powerful being in those moments.
0: It can make you go down another path that you never would go down if you could still stay in that easy, safe one that you know. The unknown path is where the riches are. And if you won't go down it unless you hit the brick wall to knock you off your easy seat, to mix my metaphors here, Mm -hmm. something to knock you off the easy seat, the easy path, where you can't keep going down that road that you know really well, Yeah. That's the only reason you'll turn. And my goodness, every turn I've made has been awesome when I look back. And so you can't see it forward. You know, you can only see it when you look behind. But I'll tell you, just, you know, from my own journey and other people's that I know, you can trust the process. You can use everything in your life for the good.
1: Yeah. And that's the key is finding out how to make the decision that is
0: for the good.
1: Right. That's the crux. That's the decision making crux that is super important so that you do look back on your life feeling like you've used everything in a valuable way versus with, you know, regret. And I think that comes from the love conversation yes. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can lovingly look at your life versus, you know, the alternative. But I want to shift back into your coaching a little bit. So in your story that you shared so far, you mentioned that you discovered along these journeys of not despair, that's not the right word, but new challenges. (laughs) (laughs) And that you were actually a really great coach and that you had a knack for that so how did that evolve further because you created something called power path Mm -hmm. and performance which i love the wording of that it has everything in it that we've talked about actually about power finding your power about the path and the journey (laughs) and about performing and and we're all performers in some way in our life we're all using our voice oh that's so
0: cool that you see that yeah it was a very interesting the way that that happened when i started teaching i didn't i'm not an academic teacher i did not take you know voice science and all this kind of stuff, all I did was at that point have decades already of professional singing and speaking under my belt. And I knew how it felt. And I it also had some incredible healing. And I had a coach here, Gerald Arthur, the late Gerald Arthur from in Nashville who worked with all of the session people. And I learned how to deal with vocal strain and get it out of my voice. Because boy, talk mm-hmm. about fear. Every time I went to a session, I was afraid my voice wouldn't work. And he helped me mm-hmm. unguard. So I had those things behind me. And then I noticed that, okay, and because of all of the, you know, leading other singers in groups and directing and doing my own demos, producing those and producing any singer that I would want to do them other than me, like a male singer or something, I could tell them what to do. I, I had to learn to change my voice to match all kinds of singers from, you know, R&B singers to, you know, Christian pop to country. I think Louise Mandrell was the hardest one to Dolly. I had to morph my voice and change my tone and change my vocal cave and all that. So I had learned a lot in decades of of experimentation and copying other voices. So when I started teaching, I recognized the way my throat felt when that person was singing or speaking in a certain way. So I started making suggestions, and every student was a guinea pig, like, you know, okay, so that works. I was always looking for what works, not just for my voice, but for everybody's voice. And sometimes I'd have to say the opposite things according to what the students' issues were, but it was always to get them back to this point. And so I noticed, I began to notice that everything I knew, I was looking for some common threads so I would have some kind of system. Going back to the research scientist I could have been, (laughs) I wanted to figure out (laughs) some kind of system that I could make for myself. And I found that everything I knew about the voice, I could put in one of three categories. One was the breath. And my vocal coach wouldn't tell me about breath. He just had me do things that made me breathe right, which is funny. It's kind of what I do. All about breath. And then the second area is all about the throat, the throat configurations, the open throat, unless you wanted to talk tight. You know, how do you do that? And then the third category is one that's unusual for vocal training, I find, for the most part. And that is performance. And by that, I don't mean, you know, like the bells and whistles, I mean the skills of communicating a message like an actor. So they're synergistic, the breath, the throat, and the communication skills. They're synergistic because if you get one wrong in one area, it'll be wrong in another. And if you get one better in one area, you fix something in the other two. So I used alliteration and called it the power of the breath, the path through the open throat instead of the tight throat, and then the performance, meaning the communication. So it became the three P's. I thought I was being. I like it. I'm glad it has more, you know, meaning than one. But you know, through all these years, I keep learning. Every week, I learn something new about the voice. But I've never learned anything that wouldn't fit within those three characteristics or categories.
1: Those are great umbrellas. As you were speaking, I was like, "Ooh, that one feels like the foundation." And then you'd say another part, I'm like, "Well, that one does too." Like they're all, when you said they're synergistic yeah. and with that, I was like, "Yeah, they all they work, all work together. together." And
0: if you don't have one of them, your voice doesn't work. Mm. It either doesn't work or it
1: works really well and nobody cares. (laughs) Right. Which is maybe the performance part, the message part. Can you share a little bit more about that, how that piece works in your process and maybe how you use this with non-singers like speakers or anyone else who's delivering a message? Well,
0: like I say, it's acting technique and Sanford Meisner, the great acting coach says great acting is behaving authentically in fictional circumstances. And that is what we're doing when we're singing almost always, mm-hmm. unless you're singing a lullaby to a child in your arms, you know, you're in a fictitious circumstance or you're in the front of an audience that you don't know. The deal is just like acting technique. You've always need to be communicating to the one heart. So you're a laser beam instead of a flashlight beam, right? Mm-hmm. Like right now, it looks like I'm talking to you and I'm hoping there's lots of other people listening. But I'm not even really talking to you. I'm talking to my webcam.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I guess so. So where
0: your (laughs) eyes go, everything needs to be focused on the one heart. What heart? Not the producer, not necessarily the audience, not just anybody that's listening. It needs to be to the heart that the words or the lyrics that are coming out of your face are actually two. And then you got to go farther than that. Otherwise, you're just narcissistically delivering your truth, right? Right. It really is not about you. What it's about is if you do this successfully and you do deliver your message to the one heart and you get through, you're going to get evidence. And the evidence is the R word. You'll get a response or a reaction. So that's the brass ring for all of our speaking and all of our singing is to get the response to the message that we're delivering from the heart that we're talking to. And the rest of the people listening are kind of voyeurs. But think about an actor, you know, like Meryl Streep or somebody, you know, when she's going into character, she's not talking to the crew. She's not talking to the theater audience. She's talking to her acting partner. And if she does that well enough, then she's going to get the audiences and she'll have crew there because she'll get hired. That's the way she's valid. Our validity as voices is in the responses that we get. How about that? Mm-hmm. People don't think of it that way, you know, especially when they're told their voices need to be good. Good doesn't mean anything unless it's relative to, did I get that response?
1: So how do you stay out of like comparison and feeling like you're not getting enough response or imposter syndrome that pops up during these moments where we don't feel like the response is enough or Mm -hmm. all of that? That's a great question. And it's all
0: about using your imagination. Remember Van Gogh. If you have got a message in the first place and you believe in it enough to deliver it, if that song's lyrics are not something you feel good about, don't put it in your set. If that speech, now I wouldn't even do a jingle that I didn't believe in. And I definitely did before, but I've just kind of come to this place about it. The thing is, you use your imagination. It's like being in the recording studio doing some kind of audio book or song. You're talking to someone. And you have to imagine them in your mind. And you imagine their response. And it doesn't matter if somebody really in the moment is responding to you or not. Because in your imagination, you're playing with your imaginary friends.
1: And I know <laughs> there's, a,
0: there's a student of mine. Story yeah. of my life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you, you, that's really good if you played with your imaginary friends <laughs> as a kid. Because you need to keep doing it now. But there's a student of mine right now. And she was doing a writer's round. And she just naturally went there she just naturally went lights, camera, action with the story and who she's talking to and and all that, no matter who was in the room. And in Nashville, if you do a writer's round, it's such a jaded town. The only people that are really paying attention to you are usually your family and friends that came for you. But the rest of the, you know, everybody else is just kind of yakking and talking. Well, there happened to be a Grammy producer who was in that yakking, talking place, and he got captivated by the way she was being real. And long story short, He came up to her and asked her to work with him free because he totally believed he could do something with her. And she's just, her career is just blown up and they're about Mm. to get married. So
1: I'm telling you, whatever you do, just play
0: with your imaginary friends and trust the process.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it as like that's the theme exactly. of this episode for sure and i feel like what like podcasting can feel very much oh, like yeah. you're playing with your imaginary friends cuz i have to imagine that people are listening <laughs> and i hope that that's true and it's harder to see the engagement, because let's say on YouTube, you have comments below and you can see who's commenting or on social media, you have that. You don't have that in the way podcasting works on the way people listen. So I totally feel like I'm playing with imaginary friends (laughs) all the time. (laughs) You know, another thing about it
0: is there's no substitute for experience too. So people need to get out there in front of real people and always treat the venue of people or whatever room you're in, if it's a small room or it's a big one, like one. And then you're not going to be nearly as nervous either because your lizard brain, your automatic nervous system knows how to do that, how to have that conversation with one. If it's a million or or it feels like it's a million, even if it's four, then it's going to get nervous. But just keep talking to the one heart, but join things like Toastmasters. And of course, with the pandemic, this has all been difficult. But now the more people we can get in front of, even if it's a Zoom room or whatever, and we have those one-on-ones where we can see each other like you and I can on riverside the better then you can take that experience into your imaginary room when you're not actually looking at someone but there's no substitute for actually delivering messages to real people that are in front of you
1: and i think that's really impactful with the authenticity mm-hmm. piece as well because if we imagine the one person or even if we choose one person in an audience to speak to i was an actor for a while as well and Whenever someone was struggling on stage in a class, for example, specifically for monologues, the coach would ask someone to go up and sit so they could talk to them on stage to that person. Yeah, Yeah, and it immediately shifts, immediately shifts the impact of the message that they're trying to deliver because they get out of that narcissistic thing you were talking Mm -hmm. about where you're doing it in a way that you've practiced imagining no one is receiving it because you're so worried about whatever gets in the way, the words, memorization, maybe some lack of clarity around what the message is, all of that can get in the way of focusing on why you're saying it, who you're saying it to and why it's important, which is kind of what we can do all the time with everyone is be intentional about that. And acting is the same thing, especially if you are up there by yourself doing a monologue, but that is a wonderful uh, connection for me and for anyone else who's a performer to kind of take that with you Mm -hmm. into the other things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing it that way. So can you give us like an idea of how someone at home could apply this? I know we kind of talked about it a lot and how it works. But like a tip someone can do at home, like what are the steps they can take to do this in their own life for anyone who's maybe not a singer, not a performer? To do what? Like the power path performance. Can we apply that without delivering a speech or a performance or singing? Is that something that would work in a... In yes, it, it
0: definitely can because it's, it's also about speech. And who of us does not go through a day speaking to somebody in a very practical ways? Walk knees first, not nose first when you're talking. What does that change for us? The power that your voice should come from, your speaking voice or your singing voice, is not from your diaphragm because that actually sabotages the diaphragm because it draws your ribcage in a little bit, and that gives the diaphragm too much slack. Hmm. And that means the diaphragm can't control air as well. What the diaphragm needs for control, to be able to control itself in cooperation with the automatic nervous system that's trying to do what you're intending to do, is width in your ribcage. So you'll notice you move your head back and you balance your head over your tailbone instead of your pubic bone, or over your heels instead of the balls of your feet, you'll notice right away you can breathe better. You also get a better inhale, and that's because your rib cage is wide, and the diaphragm can come down more efficiently, and can also come up in a more controlled manner, like a drum head or trampoline. You don't want it to, you want it to be nice and tightly strung, right? So a wide but flexible rib cage. If you go knees first as you're walking instead of nose first when you're walking and talking, you'll notice a difference in your breathing, I guarantee you. And if you're sitting like we are, I've got a cockpit desk here. And my chair here can pull in to the desk so that I can move this mic back a little bit and I again my head is over my tailbone instead of the pubic bone and my rib cage is wide in the front. This also is psychological, like it says, come to me, let me give you this, let me give you this message. The power of the magnet is what I call it, instead of the blowhard is much more effective. So that's a breath thing right away. It's where your head is literally in space. <laughs> Balance your wow. head, whether you're sitting or standing, to the back and don't lift your chin to do it. It's kind of cocky. It's very confident looking, right? Yeah. I'm practicing Uh for
1: those who can't see us.
0: And and here's another (laughs) thing that does. You can even feel that move in your, if you're aware, in your ears, in your eustachian tubes, because the throat channel opens up, down, and back. And if you raise your eyebrows, you'll notice that your nose feels bigger inside. kind of stretches. Well, people that talk without eyes, in the first place, it's hard to trust them because it seems like they're hiding something. And even on the phone, you can hear me now. My eyes are not moving. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now I'm going to start moving them. And that's the only thing I'm going to do different. And you heard my voice change, right? I oh, language. Yes. Whether you're on the phone <laughs> or, you know, wherever, use eye language. And then the jaw, okay? When you are not sure that if what you're saying is valid or being listened to, you won't move your mouth very much. And your articulation will be muddy like that and... Your tone is going to be really yucky like that, you know? But if you move your jaw and you give your voice access to that too, you can hear the difference in my voice. Well, not only does my voice sound better, it feels better because it's not tight. The channel's not tight back there. So the voice opens up, which is the soft palate and the back of the nasal membrane. It opens down, which is the tongue and jaw positions, speaking with the front of your tongue rather than the back of your tongue, and move your jaw. And back. When the neck vertebra moves back ever so slightly, you can feel it in your eustachian tubes. The post-nasal drip zone is going to expand just a little bit. So you see posture, and this this is the posture of confidence. If you're not confident, act as if you are. That is going to give you better breath. That's going to give you more resonation because the vibration from your larynx can reach alternate resonation zones in your head, right? And Mm -hmm. then... Your voice feels so good, you can just focus on what the heck message you're delivering and then do that really clearly. And so, I mean, anytime you say anything to anybody, that's the way to make it effective. The only time you shouldn't do that is if you got in trouble and you really, you really are not valid. You better just be quiet for a minute.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That is great. That's something that everyone can do all day at any time. So I appreciate that. It's better that for health, so but I'll
0: tell you another thing. It's also more. Uh, it costs you more muscle wise. So it can make you hungry to do that because you're using the bigger muscles. But your voice never feels anything. Your voice feels great. The rest of you needs to go get lunch or something.
1: Oh my God, it makes you <laughs> hungry. That's so it interesting. It really does. That's why I'm always so hungry after podcasting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Because you've got a great voice, and you're using it
0: right. You've learned to do things that you didn't even know you were doing. I bet you recognize some of this stuff just listening to it.
1: Well, I should have asked you that. Do I sound like I'm using my voice correctly? Has it changed throughout? I know I got choked up at one point because I wasn't swallowing. But overall? Yeah.
0: And all you have to do to prove it to yourself is use a poker face, and don't move your jaw, and move your head forward just a little bit like you're tired, and count to 10 or, say, your ABCs or something, and
1: then move back feel yeah. the tension in yeah. my throat. I already feel my voice yeah. drop into my frogginess throat. And I'm sure The coolest thing is Versus, that if it
0: feels yeah. better, it sounds better.
1: That's a pretty good juxtaposition right there. Yeah. And uh, same thing, right? Going back to metaphors of life, I feel like that's everything. If you feel really good, if you feel good and there isn't like things coming up that you're like, oh, this doesn't feel so great. I don't know why. Then you're probably on the right yeah. path, whatever that exactly. is. I love how this just weaves in and out practically, but also great it goes for together. application yeah. to bigger picture things here. So I have to say when I am speaking correctly, it feels, well, it feels better. So it feels like I'm healing my experience. It, I don't know how to you're, explain you're vibrating. that. You, the
0: vibrations are bigger. They're more frequencies going, you know, you know, it's creating yeah. endorphins. I mean, that's why we sing. Do you know when you moan, the, you're moaning in pain, you're actually creating endorphins to deal with some of the pain?
1: Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, vibrations are amazing. Yeah. It's really interesting. So do babies like humming for that reason too? Like Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It feels good. Yeah. Interesting. I also on the note of healing like I would gift myself singing lessons occasionally just for myself for my own what felt like my own healing, mm-hmm. it's like part of my healing process, but it always brings up lots of stuff because I'm using parts of my body that I don't normally access and it's always surprising to me because it's always a little bit new whatever comes up can you help us understand why that's happening and maybe some experiences around your That's experience a great with question.
0: That? The voice is affected by absolutely everything psychologically physically mentally if, you, if your big toe hurts you're going to be distracted a little bit and you're going to be a little crunched in a place you don't want to be mm. so when I, this has happened more than once, that I've taken a new student in and I've helped her get in touch with what message delivery really is and like she's really connecting through the song or they're talking to somebody and she'll start crying because she's used to numbing it down. She's used to numbing it down. But then I've had one, I remember this one student that we decided she needed psychotherapy more than her vocal lessons. <laughs> so is she. It diverted her there because it opens you up. I love it because it frees you. It literally frees you and it heals you because it is about, you know, even in Chinese medicine, the meridians and all that, it clears paths. It opens you up. You're vulnerable though. You're vulnerable because you're opening up yourself to, oh my God, criticism, you know, or something. So I tell people real singing and I would add speaking is not for the squeamish. You have to rev it up and be willing to, you know, figure out if your message is something you believe in. And if it is, and you can reciprocate, you can listen to other people's messages too, but you need to stand and deliver, you know? And if something hurts, there's a lot of reasons for vocal problems. You know, I've had one student that had a paralyzed vocal cord. And the reason was absolutely, we figured out was fear, she was diagnosed with a paralyzed vocal cord. We talked in vocal lessons. We did some exercises. She couldn't do it first, but we just kind of gently sort of talked about things and all that. And she took a deep breath and she was able to open up. Three weeks after that, after us working through a couple of vocal lessons, she went back to Vanderbilt Voice Clinic. And her, of course, she could sing by then. She just went back to get scoped. The paralysis was gone. And that's not the only time it's wow. happened. And there's vocal damage that has been healed by learning how to apply technique in a way that is healthy for your voice and letting your voice heal. I mean, polyps healed themselves, inoperable polyps, a vocal sulcus. This person that was diagnosed with a vocal scar is back singing gigs, even spasmodic dysphonia, which is really a neurological disorder. When you use the technique that I call pulling instead of pushing, then temporarily it can help the person use their voice. It's not a cure for spasmodic dysphonia. But for most vocal issues, the voice can heal itself almost always without medical intervention. That said, if you think you have a vocal problem and you suspect it might be vocal damage, you need to go to the doctor because it could be cancer. You don't want to mess around. Just get diagnosed. But then don't be fearful. You know, technique. Vocal technique, vocal training, why would you want to do that? Well, you want to do it if you want your voice to feel better or sound better, period. And all vocal technique does is help you deliver messages. It's not an end-all, end When I hear a great singer sing, I don't want to wonder who their vocal coach is. I want to go, oh my gosh, wow, what a moment. And vocal yeah. technique just gives the vocalist, singer or speaker, the way to actually operate their instrument the way it was made to operate. It's just all about efficiency. So I know that was a kind of a rounded answer to that question, but really the voice is about everything. So to try to get to the bottom of an issue, you have to be a bit of a Sherlock holmes And that's what I call myself sometimes, Sherlette Holmes, you know.
1: You <laughs> have to figure I out that. where that gremlin is, where the central gremlin is. A lot of it does sound so related to how we think. Mm-hmm. And I've come across that too. I don't if I don't understand a note, I can't do it. Uh-huh. And it's like something with the way I think about it. that it's usually a mental block. And that as soon as that's solved, then suddenly I can do a lot more with my vocals. And that was always fascinating to me when I realized that that's how it works. It's like, oh, That's so interesting that it's so much about how we perceive and what we think is possible. So I can see how much the metaphors, you know, we keep talking about how these things are applicable in in life in these bigger ways. But it makes so much sense when you think about Mm -hmm. it that way, that it's connected in this idea of how we perceive ourselves and what we're capable of get through that. I've got a
0: kind of condensed way that I tell people when they get ready to do a performance of any kind, I say, you've got to prepare. Set yourself up, brother. I use the word set yourself up physically and psychologically. So if you're in the studio, move your feet in to the mic so that the mic's coming to you and your head's over your butt, you know, and you don't have to think about it. If you're speaking, knees first, not nose first. If you're sitting, you know, back. Set yourself up physically and then set yourself up psychologically. Who are you talking to Why are you saying this? What do you want them to know? Why do they need to know it? And then what Mm -hmm. response exactly do you want to get on their face? And then go do that. And if you just think physically and psychologically, that kind of wraps it
1: all up. Yeah, it reminds me of manifestation a little bit, too, with the intentionalization around what you want to receive. You know, you have to really imagine. It's a lot of imagination in that process, too, imagining what you want to receive on the other end, imagining that it's completely true and possible. It changes reality because it changes what you do. Yes, Uh right, right. It changes Uh the action. Exactly. That's fascinating. (laughs) I could talk about this forever, (laughs) if you haven't noticed. I'll just ask you this, what is the one takeaway you would like the listener to have from this conversation if there was just one that your
0: voice is valid, and if you need help with it, get help with it, even if it's just listen to uh, podcasts like this, but your voice is not only valid but priceless, and only you can deliver the messages that are yours to deliver, and within that you find your value and many times your occupation. And if it's not working, just ask yourself, is it really the message that needs to be tweaked? Or do you need to believe in it? And just keep pressing. Maybe veer a little bit, you know, into another window of opportunity. But your voice is unique, priceless, and valid. That's really what I'd like to leave people with.
1: That's perfect. Thank you. Thank you for that. How can we connect with you?
0: Well, my hub for everything is judyrodman.com if you're looking for my podcast uh, it's embedded in my blog on my website where all my socials are and all that too that you can find them there but uh, my podcast is all things vocal as you you mentioned
1: uh, and that's on most apps as well fantastic well make sure there's links for everything so that people can easily find you and I just want to say once again thank you so much for everything you shared this has been a blast being so you're wonderful
0: (laughs) thank you so much for inviting me on
1: (laughs) thank you Thank you for listening to People Begin. We hope that these episodes are helping inspire and empower you to take your next steps towards whatever you're thinking of creating. And if starting a podcast is what you're thinking of creating, then I would love to have you in my brand new private Facebook group, Unleash Your Podcast Niche, a podcast learning community for the aspiring podcaster who cares about creating an authentic message and making an impact with podcasting. Join us for live opportunities with me and meet other creatives like you who are at the same stage. There's a link in the show notes to join us. Happy creating.